did not like that yet. All right, let's go ahead and get um, started. We're good to go. I'll pray for us, and then we'll jump into the study. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are grateful to be to be here this morning. That you've brought you brought us here. Um, pray that you would focus our our minds and our hearts on your word as we open it up, and as we press into the doctrine of sin. Lord, I pray that you would not let us grow in, in discouragement or despair, but that through our, our understanding and our growth and our knowledge of sin, that we would increase in our knowledge of your great grace, your great grace towards us and our sin. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I hope you've been enjoying as much as you can enjoy a, a study on sin. Um, but I do hope that you at least found it profitable so far in our study. Past two weeks we've heard from Rob Webster and Dennis Cates, who've very helpfully led us through the doctrines of original sin, total depravity. And Dennis, what did you, the essence of sin? Is that what you? Sin's essence. Um, and today we plan to cut, the plan is to cover the next two chapters of the book, chapters four and five. And we're going to spend quite a bit more time on the second chapter, which is a chapter on the doctrine of indwelling sin. Indwelling sin. But first, Jones adds a chapter which he entitled Sin's Vocabulary. Sin's Vocabulary. And what he's doing in this chapter is really quite simple. He's just chronicling the, the biblical language for sin in both the Old and New Testaments. So you can think of it, how does the Bible speak about sin and evil? And the big goal here, and the goal for us, is that by doing this exercise of examining the, the exact biblical language for sin, we will have a more holistic or, or well-rounded view of what sin actually is by the words, by looking at the words that we see for sin. Jones picks on the... the the commonly held definition within the modern church for sin as, as missing the mark. So maybe you've heard this, sin is, is missing the mark. Um, and no doubt sin is missing the mark of God's righteous law and, and God's holiness. But as Jones argues, to simply say that sin is just missing the mark is a grave injustice to the actual vocabulary of sin that we see in the Bible. And not having the right biblical vocabulary for sin warps our view of the of the actual nature of sin. John says, understanding the wide-ranging assortment of the biblical descriptions of sin offers a clearer view of the appalling character of sin. So understanding the, the wide-ranging assortment of the biblical descriptions of sin offers us a clearer view of the appalling character of sin. So we need to understand that essential to any study of sin or, or doctrinal formulation of sin or, or the nature of sin, we need to understand the truth that all of our sin is, is directly against a holy and righteous God. So it's not simply just missing the mark 
in some trivial way. And only by having the vocabulary of sin that we find in the scriptures are we going to fully understand what sin, and what sin is and why it is a, a massive problem. So we, as people of the book, some Bible people, we want, to, we want the scriptures to shape our understanding of what sin is and not anything else. So the first thing Jones examines is the Old Testament and argues the importance of the Old Testament in its teaching on sin is that it gives a wide variety of words to describe sin. And the Old Testament gives us a a myriad of examples of of different manifestations of sin in the lives of the human people, of the human characters in the story. And if you are here at all for... Um, the last Sunday School series in, the, in our biblical theology of the Old Testament, you can definitely attest to that last part. There, there, there are a lot of manifestations of sin in the lives of the humans in the Old Testament narratives. Pretty much in, in every story. But the majority of this chapter um, in Jones's book doesn't deal with, with an analysis, per se, of, of different biblical characters that would enlighten our, our understanding on, on the human nature, but rather the focus is on the precise language God uses in the scriptures for, for evil and for sin. So the Hebrew word that is most commonly translated, and I'm going to butcher this pronunciation, but the Hebrew word that is most commonly translated as sin in the Old Testament is chatah. I can't get that down over. Took a year of fever, still can't. <laughs> um, and it generally is referring to the idea of committing an error or, or doing wrong or going astray or the, the, the famous missing the mark. So it's just committing an error, doing a wrong, or going astray. And so this may or may not always refer to, to sin as we think of it, as, as sort of a transgression of God's law. But it is the word most common for, or that is translated most as sin in the Old Testament. And we can read in a place like, like Proverbs 19, verse 2, which says, Desire without knowledge is not good, and whoever makes haste with his feet misses his way. That last phrase, misses his way, is that, is the, contains that same root. So this is a, this is a, a physical language of, of missing his way is symbolizing something spiritual. So the one who makes haste, the one who makes haste sinfully rushes into things by, by acting without thinking and thus is acting recklessly or impulsively. So the text is clear, clearly referring to sin, right? But it is doing so, and this is quite common for the wisdom literature um, in a whole, like, like the Proverbs, but it's doing so, it's denoting sin in terms of, of, of a physical, everyday experience that is symbolic of moral failure. So that's a common way we see sin described in the Old Testament, something like missing the way, missing um, the mark. So some other words that, that Jones looks at is, is the verb to rebel, to rebel. 
And this word refers more explicitly to the willful rebellion of a person, either against God or, or a rebellion against other humans. Another Hebrew word we translate as rebel is tzarah, um, which refers literally to, to a departure from a path or road. So it typically denotes a, a spiritual and, and stubborn deviation or rebellion. So Israel is spoken of in Isaiah 1, 5 as, why will you continue to rebel? Why will you, that's that's, uh, the word sarah, so you could translate as, why are you persistently stubborn in your rebellion? It's a a particular um, deep-seated type of rebellion. The noun ma'al, ma'al, refers to to treachery or, or faithlessness. Ezekiel 15.8 says, And I will make the land desolate, because they have acted faithlessly. They've acted faithlessly, declares the Lord. We also see the word abomination, which is the English, English translation. Abomination used to describe an action that is something repulsive, whether that is something that, that God abhors, or sometimes even something that, that humans abhor. Examples of an abomination that we see in Scripture is sacrificing of a blemished sheep to Yahweh or or sexual perversions such as men lying with other men, which we see in Leviticus 18, 22. Another term for sin that we see in the Old Testament is what we translate as curse, although this is typically dealing with a punishment for sin, a curse, and it's frequently... Um, used as a declaration for a formal punishment of God against covenant breakers. Other words that that occur for sin, depending on our English translations, are are mischief, wickedness, trouble, wrong, error, fraud, crime. One word that John camps out on that is particularly important is the word that, that we translate as iniquity. It's important because it's used frequently in the Old Testament. Jones chronicles over 200 times that it's used. And it refers both to, to the sinful action or the iniquitous act itself and to the, to the guilt that accompanies all iniquitous acts. And it refers to the, to the punishment, therefore, that, that must result from the act of iniquity. So the iniquitous act, the guilt that comes with the iniquitous act, and the punishment that comes with the act. It's kind of all built up in this term that is translated as iniquity in our Bibles. So Exodus 34, 6 through 7, the Lord, this is where the Lord gloriously declares um, who he is. He declares his character to Moses, and he uses the word iniquity. Yahweh, he, he says, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So we see a, a clear declaration of God's wrath upon those who have committed iniquity 
and those whose fathers have committed iniquity. So there's also in some sense a, a corporate aspect to this idea of iniquity. Jones writes, just as a righteous just as righteous parents bring blessings on their children, it is also true that children suffer for the sins of their parents. Now, I think I personally diverge here from Jones a little bit. Um, maybe he doesn't actually talk about this, but I would want to say something more, and I believe this, this changes in the New Covenant era, because as we see in Ezekiel 18, and the promise of the New Covenant... No longer will the iniquities of the Father be held against the Son, but everyone is going to be responsible for their own sinful actions, their own iniquitous actions that they commit. But the point here is, in the Old Testament, is that the term iniquities implies not just sinful action of the individual, but, but the guilt and punishment that are a result of the sinful action for the individual committing it and even their, their family and sometimes their tribe. The, the, I'll pause here. Any questions or comments? Just the, the term practical? Yeah. I don't know. Anyone have any ideas? What is practical? Yes, Mr. Versailles. Yeah. I think the practical might imply that they think they are. Worshipping a God or worshipping God. So there, that might be the confusion. Where you think of an atheist would not claim to be following a God or God. In this sense, practical atheists, they would be claiming to be following Yahweh or following God, but they're functionally not operating that way. They're living in wickedness. He does in later chapters. He gives whole chapters to that. Um, I think that'll be in sometime in September. Good question. <clears throat> so let's go to wickedness. The Old Testament frequently refers to, to wicked. Um, I personally think this is a term we need to bring back more in our vocabulary um, in the Christian church, in the modern church. The term is most commonly used to describe wicked persons, wicked persons, often in contrast with the righteous, so with righteous persons. And we see in, in the Psalms alone that the, the wicked person is often characterized by, by offering evil counsel, pursuing and exploiting the poor, cursing and renouncing the Lord, living as a, a practical atheist, deceiving and oppressing. So wickedness, then we could say, is that the characteristics of a life of a, of a non-believer, of someone that is not submitting to God's law. So a non-believer is, is marked by wickedness, and therefore they are called wicked. And yet we see God will show compassion, as the, as the story unfolds, we see God will show compassion. He's going to, to pardon wicked people, wicked individuals, which is good news for each of us. But let's uh, move on to the, the New Testament. we still got to get to indwelling sin. So the New Testament, um, we see the word sin or sinful or sinner um, over and over again in the pages of the New Testament. 
Jones points out that, that Paul uses this language almost 100 times with over 60 of those in the book of Romans. And what is clear is that sin in the mind of the New Testament authors isn't simply just a, an error or, or missing the mark. It is a rebellion against and a deviation from God's law. And that is key to understanding the New Testament use of the word. The verb to sin occurs frequently, which refers to a specific evil act. Um, we see sinful behavior is also used to, to describe a group of people. So much like the Old Testament uses wicked to refer to wicked people. Um, think of the categorical declaration of calling people sinners. It's a New Testament practice. Jesus ate with sinners and tax collectors. So it's referring to a group of people. Another word that denotes sin is the word um, in the New Testament is the word flesh. So the flesh, that word is sometimes used to, to literally our, our human body, our, our literal flesh. But most often it's used to refer to the constitution of human nature. So which places like Matthew 26, 41 tells us that the flesh is weak. Our, our human nature is weak. It's affected by sin. So when Paul uses flesh, flesh it very much refers to man's sinful nature. Man's sinful nature from the fall. And so there's a, there's a constant battle between the spirit and the flesh and the life of the believer. We see this played out in the pages of the New Testament. Other New Testament words we see for sin are, are lawlessness. Lawlessness. And this is how Jesus referred to the Pharisees, breaking God's standard for right and wrong. God's law is the, is the standard, right, for right and wrong, and, and sin is a trans, transgression of that law. So lawlessness is the breaking of that law, which is a more, more specific word to get at what um, sin is. We also see the Greek word, um, which is translated a lot of different ways, but the word is adikia. Um, it's sometimes translated as injustice unrighteousness, evil, iniquity. The, the New Testament also employs the word unclean or impure. This emphasizes man's sin and waywardness that prevents him from being holy or, or near to God. We are in our sin unclean before the Lord. We're impure, which again brings up a lot of Old Testament um, thoughts of, of the temple and temple sacrifices. And so that's just a, a brief overview, a ton of different words and biblical data that, but really the point of this chapter is, is quite important as we think about our doctrine of sin. And this is how Jones ends his, his chapter by arguing that when we don't form our language and thoughts of sin from the word of God, we're in danger of missing the seriousness of our issue of our issue as sinners. Jones writes, we are more than just mere sinners. He writes, it's one thing to simply say people are sinners, but the scriptures offer a rich vocabulary of sin. So for example, he, he gives this example, a murderer is a transgressor of, man, I can't say that word, transgressor of the law of God, or one who commits 
iniquity, meaning he's guilty of that action and should be punished for his murderous act. Joan uses an example of a, of a courtroom. So a criminal, just think of our, our modern day court system. A criminal does not simply say, I sinned. I committed the act of sin. But we're all sinners, right? That, that they would, it's, it's a general term that's not helpful in the case of a courtroom. Now, if he's guilty, he has to own up to the specific act, to the specific sin. So that is what a proper biblical vocabulary of sin will do for us. It will help us properly confess before the Lord in more specific ways. So we can say we are all sinners generally, which is true, obviously. But we capture something more when we can say, like the Bible, that... um, just the, the example he uses, that, that we can capture something more. If, like the Bible, we can say that, that homosexuality activity is, is an abomination, an unnatural abomination before God. Or if we see in ourselves or in others someone breaking the law of God, that is a sin, but it also could be characterized as a lawlessness which focuses the act on God's law and not sin in some abstract way. Jones points out the example of rape. So rape is a sin, but it's a particularly heinous sin that the Bible gives us the language to better describe to get to the nature of that sin. So it's oppression of a victim that takes away the dignity of that victim in a very heinous and unique way. It's a, it's a wicked action committed by wicked people. So just calling it sin, I don't think, it doesn't actually do, do justice to the, to the particularities of the actual violation. So the point is, all sins are sin, but not all sins are the same sin. All sins are sin, but not all sins are the same sin. Therefore, we need a robust vocabulary that's, that's rooted in the scriptures to properly describe the reality of sin. So any comments or questions before going to... Well, I'm going to reject that. Okay. <laughs> but uh, the next chapter, I think we, we get into the desires and the doctrine of indwelling sin. So I think I would just be more comfortable using that language from John Owen of the indwellment of sin. Um, but I'll have to think more about concupiscence. Thank you. All right, Indwelling Sin It's the next chapter. I don't remember the chapter's title, but it's some rock and roll song, if you haven't noticed. Um, I think rock and roll. Anyways, the doctrine of indwelling sin is, is the content. And to be honest, this is not one of the, in my opinion, is not one of the most uplifting doctrines in the Christian faith. But I'm pretty convinced it is one of the most important, and it's important because it really deals with what are the effects of sin on the regenerate individual's life? What are the effects of sin on the Christian? Or what is the relationship of sin to to the believer? These are vitally important questions for us to be asking and answering. And we know from the scriptures that with conversion, we're no longer under condemnation for our sin, and we don't bear the guilt for our sin, 
Our sins were, were placed on the cross and forgiven through our faith in Christ by the blood of Jesus. Yet the reality is, and I'm sure we can all attest to this at some level, that sin is still present in the believer's life. Sin is still present. And indwelling sin, this doctrine, seeks to make sense of this reality that sin is still very much present in ourself and in our lives, even as those forgiven and having conquered sin in, 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 in the ultimate sense. Now, Jones points out at the beginning that there are very few Christians who deny um, the presence of sin in the believer after conversion. But there is a minority view out there, sometimes goes by the, the, the label Christian perfectionism, Christian perfectionism, that, that we can, by virtue of the Spirit's presence in our life, attain or come close to perfect holiness in this life, hence the term perfectionism. But I, I, I don't really see any biblical warrant for this position, so I don't think we need to spend much time thinking about it. But again, the issue at hand is the nature, the, the power, and effects of sin that remain in believers after they have been born again. John Hayden refers to indwelling sin as the, the unhappy experience of all good men, meaning Christians, the unhappy experience of all good men while they continue in this world. So in a very real sense, we as believers are now more troubled by sin than we were formerly living in darkness as slaves to sin because we see, our, our eyes have been enlightened, we see the absolute horror of it. We see the, the horror in our own lives. We see the, the wickedness that still resides there because our eyes have been opened to the, to the glorious God who we sin against. So the key text for indwelling sin is Romans 7, which you can open up there. Romans 7, we're going to spend some time here. Jones points out, and I think this is helpful, there's been some, a considerable amount of debate on this passage, specifically in recent uh, New Testament scholarship. And the debate centers around whether it's Paul's language around struggle with sin is referring to a Christian or someone not yet in Christ. So is this text talking about a Christian or a non-Christian? Or someone, yeah, before they are a Christian. Obviously, where one lands on that interpretive question will shape quite a bit of their views on the meaning of this text. But Jones makes an argument that is well in line with, with the Reformed tradition broadly, and that Paul is indeed referring to a Christian in Romans 7. Because in verse 25, he talks about the wretched man. The wretched man, he's referring to himself. And then Paul thanks God through Jesus Christ in verse 25. The wretched man thanks God through Jesus Christ. Who can do that? Christians. So that's basically the argument. Only a Christian could do that. Therefore, Paul is referring to someone in Christ in this chapter. But the real crux of the doctrine of indwelling sin is found in, in verses 21 through 23. And I'm going to read those for us. Romans 7, starting in verse 21. Paul writes, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, 
I would also say delight in the law of God. Who, who does that? Christians, right? So again, more evidence is referring to Christian. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So the key to understanding this text is what Paul means by the word law. I think he uses it in two different ways in this passage. I think delighting in the law of God, that's referring to what we generally think of, God's, God's law, God's moral law. Um, and specifically, so I want to ask the question, what does he mean by law of sin then? I don't, obviously, I don't think he's talking about the same thing. God's moral law is not the law of sin. So what does he mean by law of sin? Jones is super helpful here. I think he's spot on. He argues that Paul uses the word law in a few different ways in in his writings overall. And Jones is basing his argument largely on the argument from the great Puritan John Owen. So I'm just going to be referring to to Owen from now on because he's pretty much just taking Owen's argument, which is a great argument to take. Um, and I think Owen maybe invented the term indwelling sin. I don't know if he did, but he definitely popularized it in his book um, with that title. So John Owen is, is a giant for this doctrine. Anyways, Owens makes, uh, Owen makes a distinction between law as a directive rule, law as a directive rule, and law as an operative, operative effective principle. So don't worry, we're going to break down those technical terms if you're lost. But law as a directive rule and law as an operative effective principle. So the law as a directive is a moral rule given in order to influence and and command a person's will concerning what is either commanded or forbidden. And often we see in Scripture rewards or punishments attached to either obedience to the law or transgression of the law, breaking of the law. So the law as a directive rule would include the the positive laws God gives to his covenant people, the the ceremonial law, the civil law, the civil law codes of Israel. They all all fall under this category of, of directive rules. Common example, thou shalt not murder. Right? It's a, a positive law, a directive command. Now, Owen's second category is, I find to be a little more interesting, the law as an inward principle. And so what Owen means by this is that the law will incline the will towards certain actions. The law will, law in this sense inclines the will towards certain actions. So in Romans 8.2, the next chapter over, Paul says, For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus for the law of sin and death. So the law or or rule of the spirit in the believer's life will incline the believer towards acting freely in Christ, in their freedom in Christ. That's the spirit's rule, the inward principle in the believer's life. So in the sense of law as inward principle is what Jones and Owen argue Paul is doing in Romans 7, 21 through 23, the verses we just read. Jones writes, Paul seems to be using the word law to denote an inward principle that helps us understand the nature of sin, the nature of indwelling sin. So the law of sin, 
therefore, is something like the, the inward inclination, the inward inclination in each believer towards sin that exists in us because of our flesh and therefore still present sinful nature. Yes, Dick. I'm thinking it's pro- I think it's referring to the same uh, sinful nature. Yeah, it could. Yeah, I see what you're saying. I could have misspoken there. Um, I don't know exactly what Paul is using the term law there. It seems to me maybe more on the second category of a principle, but I don't know if it's a. And it's the language of Owen. So, yeah. Um, Owen writes of these verses, and this is, I really think, one of the more important things written in church history. He says, there is an exceeding efficacy and power in the remainders of indwelling sin and believers with a constant working towards evil. There is an exceeding efficacy, effectiveness, and power in the remainders of indwelling sin and believers with the constant workings towards evil. So what Owen is saying is that there is a real and effective inclination in believers towards sin because of the sinful, evil nature that still resides in us. And this is what Paul is referring to as as the law of sin. And it's important to note here, this does not negate and must be held in concert with the truth that that the dominion of sin is broken in Christ. So in Christ we are free from the slavery to sin and we are truly able to mortify or, or kill our sin and live in holiness. That is a real possibility. But this law of sin, this, this inclination towards sin still has great power in the believer's life. And if we stop here for a second, if we're honest, don't we... Don't we all confess this is just experientially true? (laughs) That we still feel the effects of sin in ourselves? We still see it? We still see wickedness in our lives? We still struggle mightily with sin in our flesh. Now at the very same time, as sin indwells a, a believer, we must also see that believers are alive to God in Christ by the Spirit. We are alive to God by Christ by the Spirit. So you could say we have a, Owen's language, a perpetual, a perpetual yet not perfect inclination to do good. As Christians, we have a perpetual yet not perfect inclination to the good. So another way to say that is believers don't wake up every day with no inclination to do good, or only with an inclination to do just evil. So through God's regenerating work in our life and being indwelt by the Spirit, we do desire the good as Christians. Yet indwelling sin is the inclination or disposition of our natural man, our flesh, which exists in us, and it's that inclination towards doing evil things. It's an important distinction to make, I think, as we think about this. So thus, we have a great battle going on within us. Each of us do. Jones puts it as two principles within us that war against each other. 
He writes, the, the good that we wish to do is from the Spirit dwelling in us as new creatures in Christ, which means it is perpetual. But we must also recognize that the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. I think this is just a, a great summary of the Christian life. We wage war against sin even as one, ones who know our victory is assured in Christ. So in summary, theologians have from this verse and doctrine come to describe humans by our nature to be under the law of sin. Sometimes called, or, or and this law is internal in that it is of our sinful nature and stands in contrast to God's moral law. And therefore, even when God saves us and regenerates us by His Spirit in Christ, we still have an indwelling principle or indwelling power that inclines us towards sin. And that is the best way to describe indwelling sin. If you needed to give a one-sentence answer, it's an inclination towards sin that is still present in the Christian. The inclination towards sin that is still present in the Christian and then John, so helpfully, he, he points out some more aspects of this doctrine for us. So first, indwelling sin will be with us always in this life. Indwelling sin will be with us always in this life. It never leaves until we depart with Christ. He quotes a great John Owen quote that I'm just going to read. It's on page 66 of the book. Owen writes, There it dwells, he's talking about sin, there it dwells and is no wanderer. Wherever you are, whatever you are about, this law of sin is always in you, in the best that you do and in the worst. Men little consider what a dangerous companion is always at home with them. When they are in company, when alone, by night or by day, all is one, sin is with them. There is a living coal continually in their houses, which is, if it be not looked unto, will fire them, and it may be consume them. It's really the, the reality and, and permanence in this life of indwelling sin means sin is always ready to attack in our lives. As Paul says in Romans 7.21, sin it lies close at hand. Evil lies close at hand. Meaning it's ready to pounce it's, and try to destroy our lives and destroy our, our blessed communion with God. Jones argues that our sin will never take a, a holiday or a vacation in our context, meaning we can never take a break from our killing of sin. Another aspect of indwelling sin that Jones hi highlights is the problem of the heart. So in Scripture, the heart and the will are so bound close together that they're essentially talking about the same thing. When the Bible talks about the heart, it's talking about our will and our affections and our mind. And you could also um, add, by virtue of those, the, our actions, which come from our, our, our will, our affections, and our mind. So the heart, the principle here is the heart must be fixed for our actions to be fixed. And the heart is where sin dwells, according to Romans 7, and to John Owen. So our rebellion against God stems from our heart, which is what is indwelt by sin. And in this way, indwelling sin will always be present to return again and again and again. 
even after we defeat certain sins. So we can have a victory in areas of our life over certain sins, which we should praise God for. But the heart is never in this life completely rid of sin's presence. So massively important principle that we have to get down. Sin is before us and in us. Jones describes this as a, as a Trojan horse in our heart with enemies inside always ready to pounce. Very similar to the Owen quote of the coal in the house. I think it's a good image of indwelling sin. This, this enmity works itself out in our lives in terms of what, what Jones calls an aversion to God. An aversion to God. Meaning in our flesh and sinful heart we have something in us that is always disinclined towards God and His ways. We have something in us that is always disinclined towards God and His ways. And this is helpful for us to recognize because it will help us make sense of the Christian life, of the Christian walk. For example, our natural aversion to God is the reason prayer is so difficult for Christians. Because indwelling sin fights against the Spirit within us and disinclines us towards the things of God. That's why scripture reading is a chore and is difficult. And Jones goes a step further to say that there is never a time when we perform a truly perfect sinless act towards an infinitely holy God because all of our acts are tainted by the, the enmity of our hearts of um, an indwelling sin. But let me warn you here, and this is really a warning to myself I had to keep telling myself this week, when you get this truth, there, there, there's a, a real danger, and that is things can start to become discouraging, very, very discouraging, because the truth is we won't attain perfection in this life, and every good act we do is tainted by the sin that is present in us, that remains in us, until we are perfected in glory. And we all, in Christ, as Christians, desperately want to please our Father and obey Him perfectly. That is what it means to be a Christian. And because of the presence of sin in our hearts, it will not happen. It won't happen. And so should that reality, that truth that's being presented here, lead us to despair and then apathy and then just kind of a giving up into sin... No, by no means, Paul would say. This is why the language Owen uses of warfare is so helpful for us. We are in a lifelong war, a lifelong battle with sin. And Paul says in Romans 13, 14, we are to make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Meaning we hold no quarter with sin. We must strangle sin as its root. That's why Owen uses this violent language of mortify, which we must murder our sin. Jones makes the, the helpful clarifying point that the, the doctrine of indwelling sin doesn't mean that our heart is habitually inclined to evil, but rather the heart has a propensity to evil. So our heart is not habitually, indwelling sin doesn't mean that our heart is habitually inclined to evil, but rather that our heart has a propensity to evil, meaning Christians don't desire to do evil all the time or evil actions all the time. Again, right, we don't wake up and necessarily must commit evil acts. 
As in, you wake up and like, I need to do this sin. It's not how it works in the Christian. Rather, we wake up and have a propensity to commit evil. But it's still something we, we can still war against in our affections and desires and will, or the heart. And this is what Jones' last section deals with in the chapter. The effects of indwelling sin has upon the, upon the Christian. And the importance of this section get, can't go understated. Knowing the way our sin attacks us will help us better understand the nature of the Christian life and to what extent we must go in this life to kill sin and to honor Christ. That is a massively important uh, concept to get as a Christian. So the first effect of indwelling sin that on the believer that Jones points out is what John Owen calls, calls unexpected surprisals. Unexpected surprisals. So these are figments and imaginations that arise in the heart. And think of what is commonly called today as unwanted thoughts, or I've even heard recently of something called intrusive thoughts. So this is when a sinful thought comes seemingly out of nowhere in your mind, in your imagination. We aren't even thinking about a thing, and then boom, right, out of nowhere, a surprising wicked thought comes in our mind, and thus it surprises the soul, as Owen would say. So this happens quite a bit with, with lust of various kinds. Lustful thoughts can spring up involuntarily in the heart but it's important just to note here that there really is no such thing as an involuntary thought because sin resides in the will of man. Meaning these thoughts that surprise us are coming from within our heart. From within us and not some outside source. It's a really important distinction to make. Therefore we are responsible for these surprising thoughts even though they come to us as a surprise. But this is the case because of this doctrine of indwelling sin, because of the presence of the nature of sin in our lives. It's ever-present, and sin can attack at any moment in diverse ways. And I mean that literally, at any moment. So John says, We can, like a king in a palace, fortify ourselves with many guards and protections, but we need to remember that no king is truly safe when his enemies are within the gates. So again, that's the very similar imagery to the Trojan horse analogy. I don't think Jones is saying we shouldn't fortify our gates. We must do those things. But we're not ever truly safe because of the enemy that resides within our gates, within our life. The enemies are within the gates of the kingdom, Sin is within our hearts and thus can strike at any time. And therefore, it should not surprise us that sin surprises us at times. We can be successful in killing a particular sin, whatever it is, just to be surprised that the next day a new inclination towards another vice surfaces in our life. This happens quite a bit in the Christian life. And so what does this mean for, for the Christian life? Kind of like I've been saying all along, we are never in a position this side of heaven where we can relax, where we can just take a vacation from our active, proactive killing of sin. We must deny ourselves daily. 
or our, our sin that indwells us will spread. It will overtake us. Second effect of indwelling sin is that indwelling sin loves temptation. Meaning when we are tempted, we must fight not only the outward temptation, so the thing that is tempting us, but also our very own heart that looks at the temptation with eyes of delight. So there's something in us that delights in the temptation, the, the sinful nature. And this is an interesting and important theological point. We are told that Jesus was tempted in every way in Hebrews 4.15. But Owen points out that that can't mean he was tempted from within his heart, right? Because he did not struggle with indwelling sin. It's not something that he had. Thus, his temptations all came from without, from externally from him. They were all external. We, on the other hand, deal with temptations that arise from within our heart and are eager to give in to various external temptations. So again, sin is always lurking and we must be on guard, not just to guard ourselves from external temptations, which we should do. That is a, a very wise thing to do, to guard ourselves from external temptations. But we can't always control that. But the temptations that spring from the heart we also must guard against. So another effect on Christians is indwelling sin proposes to our mind and our affections that which is evil. It proposes to our mind evil thoughts, evil inclinations. So going back to temptations, we are not guilty or responsible for external or outward temptations unless we give in to the temptation. But because of the reality of indwelling sin, sinful inclinations from our heart Sinful inclinations from within us are our moral responsibility. We are responsible for our sinful inclinations and thoughts. And thus, we must, as with our external sins, we must kill them. So, it's another helpful distinction Jones makes here. We can't be blamed for outward temptations, because then, just at the most fundamental level, Jesus would be guilty of sin because he was tempted in every way. He was tempted externally. Yet when we yearn after that which is evil in our heart, which we are all inclined to do, then we sin. Then we are guilty of sin. We can't desire something, therefore, that is contrary to God's law. So to get practical, inward temptation toward idolatry, or homosexuality, or, or any sexual immorality, even if not acted upon outwardly, is sin. Because it involves desires contrary to God's law, contrary to God's design. So one example Jones points out here is, consider someone asks you to cheat or lie. That would not be a sin if, on our part if we resist. If, if there was just a temptation presented before us, to lie on this, your taxes, whatever it is. Now, if we desire to cheat or lie, even if we don't externally act on it, that would be a sin. Because it's a corruption of our desires. It's a corruption of the heart, of the will. An inward corruption of the heart is the language Owen uses. Thus, we need to be transformed by Jesus in the heart and mind so that even our minds are shaped by Christ and are agreeable to his will. Jones goes through some other effects of indwelling sin on the believer, but for time's sake, I want to move on to some application Jones gives in our remaining time. 
And really, this is self-evident with what we've been saying, hopefully. The first thing is ignorance. Ignorance of the nature of indwelling sin leads to failure to prepare for the battle. Ignorance of the nature of indwelling sin leads to failure to to prepare for the battle that rages within us. So the war between our flesh and the Spirit of God. We have to know the nature of the beast to be able to even fight it, to be able to kill it. There's one big key takeaway here. It's really a big key takeaway of this whole series of sin. But another application point is that a proper understanding of indwelling sin will guard us against pride. Even in our state of grace, of being regenerated by by the Spirit through God's electing love, we still act impurely, even in the good things we do. There's a quote that that, uh, Jones gives from John Duncan. Duncan wrote, We have never done a sinful action all our life. Or no, we have never done a sinless action. We have done many sinful actions. <laughs> we have never done a sinless action all our life. We have never done one act that did not need to be pardoned. So all of our acts are, are tainted by sin. I like that language of tainted because not all of our acts are equally evil. Yet, because we, God does accept some of our good works. The vast majority, right? The, he, he does accept our good works in Christ and rewards it due to his great mercy and grace found in Christ. So ultimately, I think there's a mystery to us there of, of how God could do that, but he does do it. But the reality is it should humble us and guard us from pride to recognize that the ongoing presence of sin in our hearts, we, you could think of it as having a, a skeptical lens on your personal actions and motivations. And the final point of application is that even though the power of indwelling sin is great, and it is great, and we must be aware of it, indwelling sin must not lead us to despair and apathy. Because in Christ, in Christ we know for a fact, we know with absolute certainty we will win the victory in the end over this powerful enemy over the the war against sin. And until that time comes, we can be a a faithful soldier, a faithful soldier awaiting our victory. So it means we, we wage war continually against the sin that remains in us. But it is a war that is already over, and we have to constantly remind ourselves of that, or we will go into despair. We will fail And we will grow in our despair, which is not a mark of the Christian life. So what does this look like? Our lives need to be, first of all, characterized by being aware of our sin and our sin nature. So of indwelling sin. It means we need to repent when we fail. Feeling godly sorrow over your sin, which is what we're going to talk about in two weeks at our next meeting having hatred for the sin that remains in our hearts, not delighting in it, not giving over into it, or thinking that it's good. And we must have a desire to turn to God and away from the sin that is present in us. That is the fight of the Christian life. That is the battle against our indwelling sin. But if you're in Christ, it is a battle that our Savior will see us through to the end. 
He is faithful to, to lead us into victory. The victory over the very sin that corrupts our hearts now. Which, if you just dwell on that truth, it is a, an amazing thing to ponder on. And the thing is, it should be our ultimate comfort that Christ Jesus will deliver us from even the sins of the heart, sins in our heart that are present. So praise be to God. Any final comments or questions, John? Yeah, and I think that's a massively important truth. Um, I wish I added it in here, but it's helpful that you said that. <laughs> because right there, there, we get great delight when we fight our sin. We get delight in the Lord when we um, are walking in obedience to Him. Um, so yeah, that's a great word. You don't want to be proud about it, yes. Sinfully proud. All right. Well, that's all we got. You guys are dismissed. We do.